This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about the cryptic world of biological soil crusts, where it is, what it does, and what we're doing to restore it. It's a good show. Stay with us. Just the questions we were looking at are just, just things you couldn't even you couldn't even dream of because you couldn't see them. You know, I'm out there measuring the amount of mosses and then sampling stems and then determining what sex they are so we can figure out why do desert mosses have such an extremely female biased sex ratio. Interesting. That's really peculiar, really interesting, and I don't know, just sunk into me like a meat hook. Today on Science Moab, we are talking to Dr. Matthew Bowker. Dr. Bowker is an assistant professor at Northern Arizona University who works to restore biological soil crusts in our deserts. These biological communities of lichens, mosses, cyanobacteria, algae, and fungi living on the soil surface perform important functions in deserts around the world. We begin our interview with Dr. Bowker explaining that biological soil crusts are more than just a community of organisms, but are actually an ecosystem unto themselves. They're a habitat, you know, just like arches or canyon lands or the riparian corridor on the river is a habitat for birds, reptiles, mammals. There's micro animals that are inhabiting the crust. There's a whole fauna of really, actually really cool guys like microscopic worms called nematodes and microarthropods like mites and something that you should totally YouTube which is columbolin or springtail. You got to see what those are. And uh, what am I forgetting? Nematodes, mites, columbola, amoebae are cool. They kind of cruise around in water and engulf bacteria. So these crusts are habitats. They're, they're housing biodiversity. They're the stage that some of these micro animals perform on. And so that really emphasizes that when you're looking down at a patch of crust, it's maybe you can even describe it more than a community, it's an ecosystem if you're saying that it's a habitat. Beyond that even, I'd say it's a micro landscape. It's all all of the above, (laughs) depending on what, what perspective you're taking at that moment. It's a pretty cool image to have when looking down at the soil around Moab. Mm hmm definitely. So tell me about your research. You work on biocrust restoration. How does that work? Well, the number one thing that people are aware of about crusts, thanks to all those great signs uh, in the parks, is that if they're damaged, if they're destroyed, they can take a good long while to recover, perhaps longer than we wish to wait. And in some situations, it, it almost seems like destroying the crust is, is an almost permanent event either because that disturbance is followed by more disturbance or it's just a really tough place to, for the crust to recolonize. So it would be incredibly useful and beneficial to arid ecosystems, not just in Moab, but around the world, if 
humans had a way to put back the crust without waiting five years, 10 years, 50 years, what, 100 years, whatever it happens to take in a, in a given loc locality. Can we pause for a second and talk yeah. about that? You know, there's a lot of talk about how long it does take for crust to come back, but mm -hmm. then you'll have people who maybe walked off trail once and then mm -hmm. came back to that same place a year later and noticed that their footprints are gone in some places. And so mm -hmm. a lot of people are starting to maybe question that idea that it does take so long because anecdotally it looks like they're the biocrust is coming back. So can you just break down for me how long we think biocrust is really taking to come back in the system? The, the struggle with that question is that people always want a number. And it's not a number. It's a, a big bag of different numbers depending on the situation. And some of the things that recovery time depends on is what was the initial problem or disturbance? Was it truly just one footprint one time only? or did you uh, drive a bulldozer and remove the entire surface of the soil? Those are two extremely different settings, and the tiny little footprint disturbance is going to recover much faster than the bulldozer or the 10 million passes of a Jeep. Okay. The other factors are the environment after the disturbance. Different places are wetter than others, so the drier you get, the more prolonged crust recovery is going to be, and the hotter also. So a place like Moab is going to recover faster than probably, say, Death Valley or around Las Vegas because they just don't have the rainfall in those areas that, that Moab has. Even though Moab is quite dry, it's relatively wet compared to some places. And I've recently looked into this for, for a book, and I collected every estimate of recovery time from around the world and it's shockingly variable in different places. It ranges anywhere from a handful of years to a handful of millennia. So wow. the range is out, <laughs> outlandish. But the global average comes in around between 20 and 30 years. And another, this is maybe a side note, but it's important to note that you have to define recovery in some specific way. That's going to change your answer. If recovery is just I can't see my footprint, that might happen relatively fast. But if recovery means we have gotten back full biomass and full diversity and full function, that requires a longer period of time than simple visual recovery. I think that's really helpful though for clarifying the whole yeah. crust timeline debate. In thinking about then these long times, so continue your work on restoration. What are you guys doing with that? Well, what we want to do is we're trying to take the crust organisms out of the environment and see if we can make them grow fast. So, like I said, the global average recovery is somewhere between 20 and 30 years. That's a long time to wait just for an ecosystem to passively fix itself. And you might think that that means that the bio crusts are inherently slow growers. But what we're finding is they're actually not. The reason they grow and recover slow is because they're limited by the environment. They're limited by water and they're limited by nutrients. Oh, interesting. So, if you start giving the crusts water and nutrients, it turns out that they can grow pretty good. They can grow in weeks to months, depending on which specific organisms you're trying to grow. Weeks to months? Weeks to months, yeah. Some of our tougher guys uh, show modest growth over about five months, but some of our rock stars are doubling, tripling, quadrupling in eight weeks or so. 
Okay, so you're figuring out how to grow them quickly. Yes. And you're doing this by giving them good growing conditions. Yes. Presumably ones not like what they're getting when they're outside. Exactly. Exactly. So that means we can go from just a little bit of crust that we got out of the field and turn it into quite a bit more crust in the, in the greenhouse or in the laboratory. And then the idea would be, you know, once we get really good at producing crust artificially like this, could we then disperse that back out into damaged ecosystems that need an intervention? And could we help them heal? So, so far, that part, the getting our crust back out into the environment, we've just been trying on a small scale in a few different places. And we have had some success in some sites at getting, getting them to live and to demonstrate that they're doing important things like holding the soil down. So it's promising. So we just need more effort there and we need to up our game and optimize the process and expand the scale of what we can do. So your work is, is basically suggesting that we can grow these species quickly in a greenhouse and then put it back out into the field in areas where we've lost biocrust cover. Exactly. If you don't want to wait for crust to fix itself, we can do it. Probably. At least it looks like it. <laughs> Maybe I'm overconfident. But. How do you see land use and biocrest restoration playing out? Yeah, no, there's, there's an immediate conflict there. If you've decided my management goal is for this area to recover and regain some of its crust, then the very first thing you have to do is eliminate whatever stressors are removing crust, okay? Whether that be grazing or, or off-road vehicles. Your restoration activities are just not going to take if the very next year it's going to be disturbed. That's not to say that having crusts, having recreation, having livestock are always and forever opposed. It's just a matter of which portions of the landscape are being managed for what at what moment in time. I can almost imagine kind of like a shifting quilt of different strategies. You know, maybe there's some places on the landscape that have been hit too hard by cattle for too long. We might want to give those areas a break and biocrest might be part of our tool to restore some fertility and allow that area to rest. And then maybe we decide to use it again for livestock in the future. It's kind of like crop rotation, but instead it's crust rotation. Exactly, exactly. I think, I think people overstate the incompatibility of land use and crust. It's just a matter of we can't, we can't devote the whole landscape to crust. We can't devote the whole landscape to cows. We can't devote the whole landscape to off-road vehicles. They each need some space, and that space can also shift through time. Christina and this is Science Moab. Today we're talking to Dr. Matthew Bowker about biological soil crust research. Here he is explaining what it's like to look down at biocrusts from above. Just like uh, looking at a forest from an airplane, it's a community. From an airplane all you see is sort of a green fuzzy covering, right? That's what we see in crust. It's not green, but it's a dark bumpy covering. You would have to get much, much closer to see all that's truly going on in a forest or a crust. Are you 
doing any biocrest restoration efforts in Moab right now. Nearby, close to the Needles District of Canyonlands, actually by everyone, everyone knows Indian Creek near there. That's our best uh, example of a restoration experiment by Moab, but we've also got others in Utah, North Utah, and the Great Basin. This is really exciting stuff. This will be something definitely that we're going to want to follow over time. I was interested, what got you interested in BioCrest initially? So I, f I learned about BioCrest in another life when I was an undergraduate, and one of my in my mind, first real jobs that might build towards a real career was as a biotechnician focusing on desert tortoises in the Mojave Desert. And when you're doing tortoise surveys, an interest in tortoises actually like goes quite well with an interest in plants, and it, then it's a slippery slope to crust. That's how, <laughs> that's how it was for Everyone me. Everyone be warned. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you're looking around for reptiles, they're on the ground. You're going you're gonna to see some other cool stuff, whether it be rocks, crusts, or plants. And for me, it was all of the above, but crusts especially drew my eye. Maybe the coolest thing about them is everyone, seemed, everyone on my crew seemed vaguely aware that we should avoid stepping on those. They take a long time to recover, but I never found anybody who actually knew what they were, which was an intriguing mystery. So wow. there's this really important mystery <laughs> stuff that catches the eye and then on closer inspection, you know, revealed um, a diversity and uh, really cool colors and just really cool stuff. It's a miniature coral reef sometimes. So it looks cool, it's mysterious, it's fragile, and this led me to read about it and it just seemed like, wow, there are way way too few people working on this topic relative to its importance. I was wondering, what do you enjoy about being a scientist? I think a couple things stand out. One of the coolest things about science is it's not just about finding out what other people know, it's about creating new knowledge. Basically you find something that's important or interesting that nobody knows the answer to and then science is a process for finding the answer. And then you've, then you've contributed to the body of human knowledge. I think that's really cool and it, it really sinks in, I think, to people when they go to grad school, graduate school in the sciences, and they learn that after a few years, they can be the world's leading expert in something. And that's really powerful and really unique. The other thing about it is you know, I come from more of an art background. I didn't even know I liked science early on. So you weren't someone who was on the path to be a scientist since you were two years old? No. Well, I, I realize now I kind of was. I just didn't recognize that as being my personality type. Yeah, I was more of an art person. I liked uh, painting and drawing and sculpture and, and all that. That was even what I started doing in college for a while. But I don't think people realize what a creative expression science is, how you can channel creative energy into that. You have to think of new hypotheses that no one's ever thought of before. That requires a creative mind. You have to think of ways to test those hypotheses. That requires a creative mind. And then when you get results that you didn't expect, you have to explain them 
and offer a reason possibly why that might be. And that also requires a creative mind. So I get to channel a lot of creative energy into science now. More so than art, which I still love, but I don't have time for. And, and more so than it sounds like you you would have thought to begin with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I remember now my, my science teacher in seventh grade told me I was going to be a scientist, and I thought it was ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, no way. Yeah, I just didn't know. And uh, something I discovered later later in college, and then I, you know, I thought back on my life. I, I remember being a kid, like going to the, actually the science section of the newspaper, hoping I would find something about the Voyager mission to Jupiter, or about when SeaWorld captured a great white shark and tried to, tried to keep it in captivity. I realized I had a science interest all along. I just didn't know I was a scientist. Well, we're all glad that you figured it out. Because <laughs> your research is awesome. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you, Matt. Thanks for this interview. It's been great. Great getting to hear about BioCrest and everything that you're doing. You can listen again to Science Moab on kzmu.org or by downloading the Science Moab podcast on iTunes. The music for our show is written by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.